This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dallas and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we're joining you on a lovely, lovely day here in Philadelphia to talk about different kinds of social impact. Um, and actually, today's an author's theme. Both of, our, both of our guests have new books out, so that's very interesting, doing book tour and some of their latest research and understanding. So that'll be, I think we'll have a, a really interesting conversation. Our first guest will join us in a moment. He's Alnor Ibrahim, professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and author of the new book, Measuring Social Change, Performance and Accountability in a Complex World. We want to welcome Alnor Ibrahim, professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and author of Measuring Social Change, Performance and Accountability in a Complex World. Alnor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. We're delighted. We're delighted. And congratulations on, on the new book. Thank you. So... Fill us in a little bit about the, the theme of the book, right? Because the title is fairly, um, I think, gives you a good sense of where you're going, you know, measuring social change, performance, and accountability in a complex world. And, and here at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, we spend a lot of time thinking about uh, both the financial aspects but also, also the impact aspects and how we start getting more, more rigorous and sophisticated in that area. So I suspect there's going to be some areas in your book that are going to be helpful for us. Yes, I certainly hope so. Um, let me start with, uh, with, with, a, with a story, kind of a genesis story for this book, which began about 10 years ago. Um, I received an invitation from the Canadian government, at the time the Canadian International Development Agency, and they were pulling together their counterparts in Ottawa, their counterparts from the UK, Sweden, Denmark, um, Netherlands, a handful of countries, that were all struggling with this issue. Um, Their challenge was that over the years, they had invested not just tens of millions, but in some instances, hundreds of millions of dollars in all sorts of social change organizations, civil society organizations. And they were under pressure from their finance ministries to demonstrate what impact uh, all of this investment had had. So I went to Ottawa for this conversation. um, And what became increasingly clear to me was that measurement was half the challenge. The other half of the challenge was strategy. Right? What is it that through their investments they were actually trying to achieve and was that lined up with what the organizations they were supporting were trying to achieve? And if you could figure out that part of it, then perhaps you could figure out what the measurement challenge was. And it pointed me to this gap in the research where you know, there really hadn't been a lot of good work on social change at this intersection of measurement and strategy. Um, partly because the challenge is tough, right? It's, you know, we know from the business world, um, it's already tough there, but in comparison, it's actually much easier in the business world because you look at two main kinds of indicators. You look at profits, or you're looking backwards at how well you did, and you're looking at share price, which is looking forward, kind of anticipating how well you might be doing. But money, as we know, is just an input to social change. It's not the end result. So that was the the genesis of the challenge. Um, And it turned out that the scale of it was huge. So, (laughs) right, just in the U.S. alone, 
um, according to the Urban Institute, we've got about 1.5 million nonprofits with about $2 trillion, with a T, $2 trillion in annual revenues. And then you add on top of that the impact investing industry, um, which really is quite young, emerged over the past decade, and according to the Global Impact Investing Network, has at least $250 billion in terms of assets under management. So there's a lot of folks really interested in trying to crack this nut, um, and that's part of what this book attempts to do. Great. And and I think it might be helpful for folks to understand the lay of the land. So I imagine many listeners are thinking to themselves, this must exist. I, you know, I've, I've read about frameworks. We know there's the gin and others. What does it look like? Do we have a few competing impact measurement tools? Is it still a wild west? And where do you think it can and should go? Yeah, well, That's his whole book. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, so it's I think we're I think we're just getting just beginning to get past the Wild West stage. Um, so we're beginning to see some convergence. Now, there's there's actually a pretty long history of this, right? So the impact investing community thinks the history is 10 years. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but if you talk to folks in international development, they'll tell you that some of the core tools in this field, theories of change, logic models, some of these have been around really since the 60s. Um, but are only beginning to get widely adopted. Funders are increasingly requiring them. Nonprofits and social enterprises are beginning to see the value of them. So we're getting to this point where pretty much everyone um, needs to have a conversation in their organizations about what their theory of change is um, and uh, you know, essentially how they're planning on getting from point A to point B in terms of the social impact they want to achieve. So that baseline, I think, um, is reasonably well established. Um, what we're seeing in addition to that is the emergence of a whole new set of tools to help people think about this. So um, the GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network, um, has its uh, Impact Reporting and Investment Standards, IRIS. Um, and in full disclosure, I've served on the IRIS advisory board for a number of years now. And IRIS has recently launched a new version of what they're calling essentially um, a kind of generally um, accepted guide or even a set of standards for reporting on impact. Um, and it's pulling together a whole set of tools. Um, part of it is definition. So if if your organization is trying to create employment in underserved communities, and my organization is doing the same thing, can we at least measure employment creation in the same way? Right? Are we talking about part-time, full-time, with benefits, without benefits? So some consistency in how we define things. So then we can actually compare um, the work of uh, each of our organizations. Yeah, we, we discovered that ourselves when we were doing a landscape of gender lens investing. So these are you know, investment vehicles that are saying, we improve the lives of women or something like that. And upon close inspection, okay, well, how do we define this? What is gender lens investing? What is being a good employer of women? What is uh, you know, access to health care, what do these things mean? The devil really is in the details, and it's very tough for the industry to align when you have such diversity. So the, a big problem is how do we pick one and align? Right. Because 
Right now, a lot of, I think, very well-intentioned groups, ourselves included, have put, put out frameworks and, and rubrics and definitional standards. But the lift for the organizations is often that they're asked to f- complete all of them, right, and, and sort of uh, up, comply to the standards set forth by all of these different groups. So how do you suggest, and perhaps this is covered in the book, which I have to admit I have not read yet, um, but how do you suggest that the field aligns on a, on a set so that we have, you know, a something that might look a little bit like the, you know, accounting principles that everyone adheres to? Yeah, well, I think the, I think it's possible to align around a set of process standards, so a guidance in terms of how you might approach the problem. But I don't think it's going to be possible to align around a common set of metrics, simply because education is different from healthcare, is different from climate change activities, and so on. Um, and where I think the heads of nonprofits and social enterprises face a real conundrum is many times they'll have a, a whole set of funders, each of which will want them to do different things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They'll want a different set of results, maybe a different set of standards or guidelines. Um, and they might even feel this pull from their, their customers, from their beneficiaries, uh, where different beneficiaries might expect different things. Um, and this is the, the problem of multiple accountability demands. Um, and like with any good organization, you can't possibly satisfy everybody. And so you have to be clear about what you want to be accountable for and to whom you want to be primarily accountable. So the way that I approach this in the book is to say, let's not look at this from the perspective of outsiders, of funders or others that are demanding accountability. Let's look at it from the perspective of the inside of the organization. What does it want to achieve and how does it think is the best way to go about there? And there's really three foundational questions that guide this work. Um, and the questions, I'll, I'll lay them out, but they're, they'll seem obvious, but actually answering them turns out to be quite difficult for most organizations, I've found. So the first is, what do we want to achieve, right? The obvious question, this is your value proposition or your goal. And it turns out even within an organization, if there's 10 people, I bet you you'll get five different answers to that question in most social change organizations. I think Cheryl and I would bet you it's 10. And then the second one, if you can answer that one and get everyone aligned around that, the second one is how will we bring about that change? This is your strategy. And, And in the book, I identify four key types of strategies that I think are actually pretty comprehensive. Um, and you have to you have to primarily pick one as your main strategy, um, and we I can say more about that in, uh, with an example. That'd be great, yeah. Right, um, and then the third question that follows from that is, how will we hold our own feet to the fire? Mm-hmm. So this is not accountability to the outside world. This is accountability to what we believe in, and that's where you get ultimately your most important metrics and measures. Sure, from. because it allows you to manage for that impact. Absolutely right. Yeah. Indeed. So I think it would be, yeah, great if you could talk through, and maybe this is where you were headed, an example, because what we've heard you say is focus on process, work with the organization on, you know, what matters to them internally. And so if you could give an example and then talk about, 
you know, I'm, I'm wondering now how these funders, so we sort of have solved for customization to the organization, mm-hmm. but then how does the ecosystem compare? You know, so talk us through maybe a specific example to color some sure. of those dimensions. So, so let me give you uh, uh, an example of an organization in Washington, D.C. that uh, works with uh, the urban homeless. Uh, it's called Miriam's Kitchen. And I devote an entire chapter in the book to them, partly because I've known them for about 15 years, and they've undergone over that time period a very fundamental transformation uh, in their strategy. Um, And they went from what I call in the book a niche strategy, which is a really focused set of things that you do, um, but don't have control over a lot beyond that, to an ecosystem strategy where you really try to get involved in changing multiple things within the broader environment. So if we start with Miriam's Kitchen 1.0 about 15 years ago, it was what you would expect from a soup kitchen. Right? It was serving warm meals to people, two or 300 people every morning, um, providing clothing, maybe connecting them to various kinds of government services. This was a very specific role, a niche within this bigger ecosystem, and that niche was emergency services. It was not doing mental health counseling or substance abuse counseling or housing, which are kind of the other pieces of the puzzle. This niche strategy was to provide these basic services with very high quality. So I have to say, I served breakfast um, in their line once, and the food was unbelievably good. Um, And in fact, um, the former first lady, Michelle Obama, actually served a Thanksgiving meal at Miriam's Kitchen. So if you're a manager in Miriam's Kitchen 1.0 with this niche strategy, the question is, what would you measure What would you want to be accountable for? And the answer is you'd measure short-term results. You'd measure the number of people fed, the number of people clothed. That's about all your strategy enables you to achieve. Where this gets complicated is funders and sometimes your own board might want you to be measuring the number of people you got off the street. Right. Sure. Right, And indeed, Miriam's Kitchen, 15 years ago, um, faced exactly this challenge. So if you're a CEO, how do you respond to this? Right, Because part of your funding environment, people will go out and raise money for you, um, and uh, they want you to be getting people off the street. If you're going to be honest, that measure of getting people off the street for that niche strategy is the wrong measure. Exactly. It's not what you do. It's not your strategy. The only right measure is short-term. And, and I think there's real value in that, right? You can do this well. You can be high-performing in the sense of doing this well. You can reach a lot of people. You can serve a lot of meals. Just look at Jose Andreas and what he does after disasters. Um, and so that was Miriam's Kitchen strategy at that point in time, and it was the right strategy and the right set of short-term metrics. So fast forward to Miriam's Kitchen 2.0 today. Um, a few years ago, they decided that they wanted to change their goal, their value proposition, and it would be to end chronic homelessness in Washington, D.C. Wow, okay. So a huge shift, right? Yes. Um, and, uh, and it's not reducing, it's not alleviating, it's ending chronic homelessness in the Washington, D.C. area. It got everybody in the organization aligned around this goal. 
so the second question is, okay, so how are you going to do it? What's your strategy going to be? Um, and it turned out that there was actually a lot of work in this that had been done by other organizations um, in New York and elsewhere um, that uh, that was called Housing First or Permanent Supportive Housing. Right. And they realized that the biggest bottleneck was availability of housing, uh, part one, and part two was a need for coordination among what turned out to be about 100 organizations just in the Washington, D.C. area working on some piece of this problem, right? So you've got providers of mental health services, substance abuse, job training, housing, um, you know, experts in measurement. Could you actually um, uh, pull all of this together in an ecosystem? Could you orchestrate all of this work in some sort of a way? This leads us to the measurement question, right? The end goal turns out to be actually not so hard to measure, the numbers of chronically homeless people on the street in Washington, D.C. But all of a sudden, the key interim measures begin, begin to come into better relief. The interim measures being, are you coordinating these services so that you can provide customized services to the right people at the right time? Are you getting people into housing um, are you collectively lobbying City Hall, and is that showing up as an increased budget allocated to affordable housing? Are housing providers um, actually working with you to identify the most vulnerable people to get into housing? So all of a sudden, those interim measures to get at that real big outcome of ending chronic homelessness become much, much more more. Uh, Clear. Now, let me interrupt with a quick question. Um, and just a reminder to our listeners, you are listening to Business Radio here on Sirius XM Channel 132, where we are talking to Al Noor Ibrahim, professor at the Fletcher School of Law and author of Measuring Social Change. So when this organization made this shift, were they shifting their programmatic activities to include access to housing, access to health care, legal support, job support, or are they still doing their same core traditional soup kitchen, soup kitchen you know, operations, but measuring it, themselves on the broader standard? Yeah, wonderful question. It's the latter. So if you were to walk into Miriam's Kitchen today, it's in, you know, their, their food service hall is in the basement of a Presbyterian church. Um, it looks exactly the same as it did 15 years ago. And if you were a casual observer, you wouldn't see anything different. The one big activity that they've added, which is new for them, um, is policy advocacy. So their advocacy team is actually their biggest team now. Mm. And that really is coordination work. It's working with other people. It's working with other organizations in the city. Um, so they're, they're continuing to do that original basic needs services work that they established their reputation and legitimacy on. But they've layered on top of that this role, which is... Uh, a node in a network with a handful of other partners to coordinate their work so that when somebody gets placed in permanent housing, there's going to be one organization that will go and provide the substance abuse counseling, if that's what that client needs, somebody else that will work with them on physical, other kinds of health issues, somebody else that will work with them on job training. Um, and Miriam's helps facilitate 
some of this work. So, so are they joining a cohort? Is it a cohort model where of nonprofits of nonprofits where they sort of determined all the necessary, you know, uh, factors and support pieces that were, you know, that studies showed to support individuals getting out of chronic homelessness, and they banded together. Yes, and so the um, at the heart of this um, is a is a measurement tool um, where you assess the vulnerability of homeless individuals. So we know that you know that there's not every homeless person is the same. Chronically homeless people are kind of falling back repeatedly into a situation of homelessness. But there's other people that you know that are actually middle income that lose their job, mm-hmm. um, fall on hard times, and actually could get back on their feet with kind of a a short-term financial aid kind of a solution. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about financial insecurity on the show and that, you know, percentage of Americans that can absorb... A $500 bill. Yep. I think, you know, it's like 40% can absorb the $400 shock or something. So it's very easy to imagine a lot um, of individuals in this position. Yeah, so there's all of these degrees of vulnerability. And this assessment tool, um, the Vulnerability Index, which is robust, it's been tested a number of times. If you were to walk through an individual with this survey, you would get a pretty clear assessment of how vulnerable they are. You know, so it's not just the financial piece, but asking questions like, how many times have you been to the emergency room in the past three months? Mm -hmm. How many interactions have you had with the police? And then you can actually... Um, aggregate this up and develop a, a score, a vulnerability score. And it's the most vulnerable of that set that you would then prioritize for this housing first model. And although it sounds expensive, actually putting these people in housing and then wrapping all of these other services around them, it turns out in the end to cost society and taxpayers less because you're no longer paying for the emergency room visits or for the uh, police uh, visits and so on. And so measurement turns out to be really important in terms of segmenting this market and then prioritizing. But in order for it to work, everybody has to use that measurement tool um, and Miriam's Kitchen, along with its partners, actually trained several hundred staff people in different organizations to administer this tool, this survey, in a consistent way so that then they could go out and do these surveys, and they've done over 12,000 of them to capture almost every single uh, chronic, almost every single homeless person in the city. Now, in Philadelphia, we have Project Home run by Sister Mary Scullion, which is you know a, a well-known homeless uh, Service, service provider. Yeah. But has the, the kitchen model been um, replicated elsewhere? Yes, indeed. And actually, the originator of the model was a New York organization called Pathways to Housing. Um, Sam, Sam Samberis was the person that actually created this model originally. And Miriam's heard about it um, uh, from a conference uh, that they went with other organizations, a national conference. Um, and there's national organizations, the National Alliance to End Homelessness, uh, community solutions um, that actually support organizations like Miriam's to give them the tools to to execute this, as well as to help them understand how to do um, advocacy at the city level. So, as you can see, it's it's a whole ecosystem of players that's required to make this happen. And so, to come back to this measurement question, you can measure those key outcomes, like reductions in chronic homelessness. Um, if you've got this kind of a strategy, 
and it would be entirely appropriate. Um, though you couldn't take credit for it by yourself. You would have right. to take credit for it as a collective. And for some funders, that works. But for a lot of funders, they want you to take credit for all of it, which poses a real... Yeah, it's the additionality question. Sure. And yeah. if not taking credit for all of it, assessing how much Which, you're having an impact. Right. And, and, and in some ways, that's important because you need to know how impactful... If everyone's just measuring, you know, measuring the number of individuals experiencing homelessness in D.C. that end their homelessness experience it's hard to gauge what the most impactful part of that ecosystem is. So how do you make peace with that sort of performance management and understanding peace if what you're managing, what you're measuring is the, you know, the system, the, the total system yeah. impact? Yeah. And there's all sorts of system change efforts, uh, what some folks call the collective impact, mm -hmm. that face exactly this problem. I mean, you've really put your finger on it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist about this, which is to say that if we can identify a constellation mm -hmm. of interventions that together are shown to work, right? So in this case, the housing surrounded by all of these other services and we can see over time the needle moving on the problem. We can see declines in chronic homelessness as a result of this complex combination of interventions. Then perhaps we're emphasizing the wrong thing by saying, well, what was Miriam's contribution as compared to this other organization's contribution as compared to the other organization's contribution? Could we instead say, well, let's try to figure that out over time, but for now, let's invest resources in the ecosystem and really try moving the needle on the problem collectively. And you can see how this makes sense for climate change. It makes, cha it makes sense for um, closing the racial achievement gap. It makes sense for all sorts of really tough challenges where we know the interventions are going to be multiple, complex, and there isn't going to be a clean, yeah. linear relationship across them. Right. So we are coming quickly to the end of our, our segment here, um, and it's been really thoughtful uh, discussion that we've had. What's what's next? I mean, what what would be the advice you would give us at a business school about how to how to most direct our students and our community around doing better about measuring social change? There's so much work to be done in this arena, and so if you think about the different stages of investment that any investor might make. Um, you know, initially, they're going to search for a match with their values. Then they're going to do their due diligence. Then they're going to invest in the company or the organization, and they're going to want to help it improve. And then finally, you're going to evaluate and assess. Most of the emphasis so far in the evaluation world has been on that last piece. How do we assess impact at the very end um, and a lot of emphasis has been on, you know, randomized control trials where you have a control group and where you have um, the actual uh, change group or the intervention group. Well, there's all of this other work that needs to be done before that. So um, one of the approaches that I've done some work on with, with Acumen, an impact investor, has been on lean data. The lean data saying, stuff, exactly. Yeah. How do we get customer feedback in real time? Can we talk to customers and beneficiaries and use technology to actually get that feedback quickly so that nonprofits and social enterprises can adapt their social change models in real time? There's lots of great work happening in feedback 
um, Acumen Spinoff, 60 Decibels, is doing this work. Feedback Labs is doing this work. Another organization called uh, Keystone uh, Accountability is doing this work. So there's lots to get involved in there. Another area where I think there's lots of opportunities for, for new energy is around the sustainable development goals. So 17 huge goals that many of the world's countries have signed on to, like no poverty, zero hunger, affordable and clean energy, gender equality. These will all require collective action. Nobody's going to be able to take credit for this by themselves. It's going to require business at the very core. And so how do we get business to measure social change as part of its core strategy, not a not a corporate social responsibility on the right, side. Right, absolutely. So all sorts of wonderful opportunities for well, motivated people. Wonderful. And that's a great way to leave on a note of optimism. We've been talking with uh, Alnor Ibrahim, professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, about his book, Measuring Social Change, Performance and Accountability in a Complex World. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.